we are beginning a series of seven overview sermons on books in the Old Testament, beginning this morning with Ruth, but next week we are doing Psalms, 150 Psalms in one sermon. It won't be extra long. It'll be the same time as normal, which is still long, but, um, but you could be praying for that. But this morning we're going to do Ruth. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, we're going to look at Ruth 1 through 5, 1, 1 through 5 in my scripture reading here, but we are going to read throughout the course of the sermon the whole book. It's on page 229 in the Pew Bible, so if you don't have a Bible, you can grab this Bible under the chair in front of you, turn to page 229, and it goes all the way to page 232. Ruth chapter 1, I will begin by reading verses 1 through 5 before we open our time in prayer. Hear then the word of the Lord. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left in Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Father, we pray that as we think about the tragedy and the bitterness and the plight that Naomi and Ruth faced, we pray that you would give us hope for our souls. So open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word and incline our hearts this Lord's Day, this Mother's Day, to your testimony and not to material gain. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast, faithful covenant love that is displayed through Boaz and Ruth in this passage, that we would rejoice and be glad in in you all of our days. We need your help now, so we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to your word, give us a particular and lively application of your word to our souls this morning, by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this request, this Mother's Day request online. It's almost Mother's Day. Please be gentle with me. There's a piece of my heart missing this year. Speaking of those who have lost mothers, and though it is a time of gratitude and celebration, for many it is often also a time of pain and sadness for many. And then there was a poem I saw online as well that was, minist- was seeking to minister to those in pain like we're going to try to do from the book of Ruth. But here the poem by Ann Peterson says, God, I hurt intensely. This loss is so surreal. I either hurt immensely or nothing do I feel. And then I heard him whisper so soft and tenderly, I'll gently kiss the one you miss, for she's right here with me. Here in this book of Ruth, even in those first five verses I read, we read about intense affliction trial and tribulation. And so perhaps we can agree 
with this, the prayer of this verse from Psalm 1950. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. That's what we hope to get from, from Ruth. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise, God, has given me life. Now, Naomi here, we just read in Ruth 1, 1 through 5, Naomi was in the middle of a nightmare, and she wasn't going to wake up. It was real. She had traveled to a faraway land with her husband and two sons because there was a famine in their land, the land of Israel. And so they go east of the land, east of the land, just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden east of the land. um, In a a similar way, you have Ruth, uh, not Ruth, I'm sorry, you have Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons going east of the land in sort of like a a play on the exile here into a foreign land. And imagine if you're in a foreign land as an immigrant and you know nobody. You have no family. You have no friends. It's just you and your husband and two sons. Then your husband dies. And you're in a land where you don't have any other family. And then your two sons marry foreigners, foreigners to you, Moabite women. And then your two sons die. Now you really have no one in terms of biological family. Your husband's gone. Your two sons are gone. You have two daughters-in-law who you have no biological relationship with, though you've known them for 10 years at least. And now you are in this foreign land. This was a nightmare. This was a tragedy. This was a bitter hand dealt to Naomi. And we've been there too, haven't we? Some of us have been there. Or some of us are there. Or for those of you who are like me, maybe on the younger, younger side of things and your parents are both still alive, um, perhaps you have the fear that you will one day be there and it is inevitable. How do we cope? How do we cope when we're there in the affliction, in the brokenness? How do we keep trusting God and praising God's goodness when everything around us, around us and inside us seems to be falling apart? How do we say, I praise God because he's good when everything feels bad. Have you, ever, have you ever been disappointed deeply? Where the sting of life cut really deep and you felt like you were drowning? Have you ever felt the, the temptation or the actual bitterness toward God for some specific situation you were in? Naomi is certainly going to have that temptation. Some might even say she gave in to the bitterness. And then we have a bigger question. Will the bitterness overtake us? Will it overtake you? Will the evil from the outside and the evil sin on the inside, will it overcome us? And will we actually be swallowed up in the despair by the evil? Or will our faith in God's goodness prevail? Now, it could be losing a loved one in death and bereavement, but it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be like Naomi here. That's not the only way you are disappointed. And tempted towards bitterness. Maybe you're longing for the salvation of a loved one. I haven't had a major loss like that in terms of direct, though my niece had passed away. But I'm sure that the pain multiplies when it's my actual daughter versus being my niece, as painful as that was. And that's going to happen to us. These types of pains, if the Lord doesn't take us first. It could be relational pain. It could be vocational pain. It doesn't even have to be a big trial. It could be a smaller one. I, I've, I've had temptations to bitterness and disappointment in the past um, for career reasons. In the past, I've been tempted to be bitter towards God about a church that had um, been, um, I was candidating for 
in 2008, or maybe 2010 now. In 2010, I was candidating at a church, and there was a particular person in the church who was controlling the church for years as the church was shrinking. And so um, through her um, manipulating other people on the board, they had not hired a pastor for years. And, and, and that was a temptation for me to be bitter towards God. Because one, I wanted to serve there. But two, I also saw they had a great need. And three, why is God letting this one person really drive the church into the ground? And so I, I've been tempted to be bitter as I look back on those days. So it could be that. It doesn't have to be a death. It could be something smaller like that. But the question is, will we trust God in these trials? God is faithful, isn't he? God does help us in our trials. And yet the temptation and the sin are real. And so we need to ask these serious, deep questions. Here's the main goal from the book of Ruth, if you're taking notes. The main goal is this. Trust God in your bitter situations because he is for you when it seems he is against you. Okay? Trust God in your bitter situations. Why? Because he is for you when it seems he is against you. It certainly seemed that way to Naomi. So when you're a bitter, in a bitter situation, there are four ways you're going to keep trusting God. I'll just tell you the four and then we'll look at them. How do you trust God in bitter situations? You trust God by recognizing his providence. Secondly, you trust God by receiving his care. Thirdly, you trust God by responding responsibly to his revelation or walking toward God. And fourthly, you trust God in your bitter situations by rejoicing in your redemption. Okay, we'll look at those four one at a time. Number one, trust God in your bitter situation by recognizing God's providence. That's chapter one. So look at verse, chapter one, verse six. I'll read chapter one, verse six, and we'll just continue the story. So here's Naomi. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. So there's food back in Bethlehem. Verse 7, she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. So she starts her trip back. And who's she coming with? Her two what? Her two daughter-in-laws. And then something hits her, and she feels conviction. So look at verse 8. Naomi said to them, you know what? Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord, may Yahweh the Lord, the God of Israel, may Yahweh show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead, to your passed away husbands, because you're still staying with me, and me. May Yahweh grant each of you rest in your house, in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and wept loudly. She kissed them and wept loudly. And so she's telling them, you know what? You should go back. What do they respond with? Verse 10. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. We want to go with you. We want to go to your people. Verse 11. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? That's going to be important in the story, that there are brothers and family who, who are raised up to marry, to, to, to take the place in, in providing offspring for widows who have no sons. Verse 12, so she says, are you guys going to wait for me to have sons? Verse 12, return home, my daughters, go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. You guys can't wait for me to get remarried and have another baby. 
even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? If, if Ruth and, and um, Orpah are around, what, 25 at, at the youngest, somewhere around there, 10 years of being married. So if they got married around 15 or somewhere around there, they're 25 at the youngest. Are you guys going to wait for me to have another kid and then for them to grow up and then, you know, the child is 20 and you're, what, 45? Is that when you're going to wait to get married? Is that, is that what you want to do? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? You're 25 years old. Are you really not going to get married for 20 years while you wait for my children, if I even had children today, to, to grow up? Does that even make any sense? No, my daughters. My life is too much bitter. Is too bitter. Here it is, the bitterness. My life is much too bitter for you to share. Why? Because Yahweh's hand has what? Yahweh's hand has turned against me. There's theology there. Yahweh's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left, presumably. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. This is a grave resolve here. She's completely serious. When she says, may Yahweh punish me and do so severely, it's like, may Yahweh send me to hell. That's how we talk about it today. May I go to hell and be damned forever if I leave you. May God damn me if I leave you. That's what she's saying. So when Naomi sees that kind of seriousness in her daughter-in-law, Ruth, what's her response in verse 18? When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. She gave up. All right, Ruth, you win. You can come with me. Verse 19, the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? This is our family member, our cousin, our friend, our neighbor. We haven't seen her for 20 years. Could this be her? And so they see them coming back. Just a few thoughts before we get to Naomi's response here in verse 20. So they set out, and Naomi sees what's best for them, that they need to go back. So one of the questions I asked is, why would Naomi, if Yahweh is the God of Israel, why would Naomi say, go back to your people and your what? Your gods. I mean, doesn't she care about their salvation? Isn't Yahweh the only true God? Isn't he the only God in the universe? Why, why say, go back to your people and your gods? I don't have a good answer, but here's my best But this is my question, so I, I, maybe you're wondering. My best answer is, number one, she, um, Naomi cares about their physical needs. I can't supply another husband for you. You're going to go back to me to a foreign land where people are going to look down on you as a Gentile, as a foreigner, as a Moabite, and you're going to try to make it in Israel? Don't do it. Just go back to your family. They'll take care of you. You're still young. You can remarry. You can still have a life. You can still have food. You can have a husband providing for you. Don't come with me. So she cares about their physical needs. She cares about their practical needs. Secondly, in the Old Covenant, not the New Covenant, where, where the Great Commission is driving us with making disciples, Israel was to be a holy people, and people were to be attracted to them. They were not so focused on going out to other ethnic people groups and sharing the gospel for them to come in. So for Naomi to push them back is just her caring about them. I don't think she's being anti-evangelistic here. Okay, that's not the point. But so, so she does try to get them to go back, and it sort of serves like a test. 
because they have been so kind to Naomi's sons by staying loyal to Naomi that it's kind of a test. You know, go back, go back home, go back to your family, go back to your gods. And they both want to go with Naomi, right? They both say, no, we, we insist we go with you. But only one of them was determined. I'm just using the words from Ruth 1. Both insisted, one was determined. Both wanted to follow, insisted on following, but one only actually followed. And so, in one sense, Orpah and Ruth are different from each other. Ruth is so resolved, she's so determined to serve Naomi and care for her, and so devoted to Naomi's culture and God, Yahweh, and people, that she's willing to leave her whole family and be a Moabite in a foreign land just to serve her mom. She's selfless in that regard. Orpah, let's not hold anything. Let's not be too hard on Orpah for going back to her family. I mean, her mother-in-law told her to go back. And yet, at the same time, we see that her devotion to her mother-in-law and to their God and to their culture wasn't strong, right? It wasn't strong enough to, to, to go back versus the, the physical needs that she has. And we need, we need to stop here and just ask ourselves, are, you know, this sounds a lot like following Jesus, right? Take up your cross daily and what? Follow me. Um, if you love father or mother more than me or wife or children or, or husband more than me, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. You have to love God and follow Jesus with determination. And Ruth had that determination. And yet oftentimes there are Christians who are, we called them fickle fans a few weeks ago from my sermon on Matthew 4, but they're fickle when, when life gets hard and situations get hard, they actually fall away from following Jesus like Orpah, rather than being determined like Ruth. And so here Ruth, um, so, so they get to Bethlehem now. And by Ruth going there, is she going to be blessed just in general by being part of God's people? Yeah, what did, what did God say in Genesis twelve three to Abraham about the nation? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. By, by Ruth joining the people of Yahweh in Israel, she's getting the covenant blessing. And so they get to the land, and verse 20, is this Naomi? Look at verse 20 now. Don't call me Naomi. Call me what? Mara. Call me bitter. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. She answered, why? For the Almighty Almighty has made me what? Very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me pleasant? Since Yahweh has opposed me. And the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back to, from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. And they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So what, do we, what are some other things we learn here about recognizing God's providence? We learn that even the godly suffer. Don't believe the lie of Satan that a lot of religious and irreligious people believe that if you do good, you won't suffer, and if you do bad, you're suffering, and that's why you suffer. As if it's just, oh, if I would have done this better, if I would have obeyed God here, then that bad thing would have happened. That's not true. We are in a broken, sinful world, and brokenness happens to everyone, even the godly, even God's people. And so what did, what did the godly suffer here? Famine. There was famine in the land. There was death of a husband. So the husband dies, sons die, there's bereavement, and then there's separation. They were crying as Orpah left, right? I mean, Naomi loved Orpah. Orpah loved Naomi. And yet, because of the brokenness of this world, there's a separation of loved ones. The godly suffer. Christians suffer. And what's Naomi's assessment? 
that um, I'll, I, um, I read a few verses here. I'll just quote you what she said. Yahweh's hand in verse 13 has what? Turned against me. Don't call me pleasant. Call me what? Bitter. Mara, bitter. Because Yahweh, Yahweh has made me very bitter. Yahweh has brought me back empty. Yahweh has opposed me. Yahweh has afflicted me. She's not just saying she's having a hard time. Who's she talking about? God. God did this. God is in control. God is almighty. God is all powerful. God can do whatever he wants. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God could have stopped this, but he didn't. And so she's bitter. Now, sinfully bitter or not sinfully bitter, I could see it going both ways. It almost doesn't matter. Either way, the temptation to be bitter is there, right? Either way, whether she gave into the temptation, whether she's saying my circumstances are bitter or I'm personally bitter in my heart, certainly the temptation to be bitter in the heart was there. But is she wrong to say that God was in control? Is she wrong to say that God ordained these things or God was in charge of these things? No. No. In our Bethany Baptist Church Catechism, question 13 says, what are God's works of providence? What are God's works of providence? And here's the answer. God's works of providence are the holy, wise, and powerful acts in which he preserves and governs, listen to this, God preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. God governs everything. There's not a particle of dust that flies through the air that doesn't go according to God's plan and will and ordination. God ordains everything. God is in control of everything. God has a purpose for everything. And so Naomi is not wrong to say God was in charge. God was in charge. And so perhaps Naomi was bitter in the heart. She certainly was tempted to be bitter. Here's a question for us. Where do you look for joy and contentment in your life? Where do you find fullness of joy for your life? If it's not in God, you will find out that it is not stable. Nothing else can be. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, you might be saying, you know what? Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? If God is all-powerful and God is good and loving, how can he allow suffering to happen for God's people or for people in the world? I'm not gonna answer that question until the last point. But let me ask you a question if you're not. That's a great question. But if you're not a Christian, let me ask you a question. How do you make sense of suffering in the world? How do you make sense of the pain in your life? Because you don't have to be a Christian to face death, right? You just got to be alive. You, if you're living on this earth, you will face pain in this world, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, my question for you is, how do you make sense of it? What's the meaning of your pain and your bitter circumstances? Christians have an answer for that. You need to have one too. Part of our answer is what we sang. Let me quote the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, I'll read it. I'll quote the song we just sang. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Here's a verse we didn't sing. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he, tre- he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. He's in control. Ye fearful saints, are you guys scared of pain? We should be, right? Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. You're scared of those dark clouds. Those clouds are filled with mercy. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Here's here's Naomi, tempted to judge the Lord in her trials. 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. We don't have all the answers to suffering. God does, but we are called to trust in him. So Bethany Baptist Church members, if you're a Christian here, beware of complaining and having a bitter heart toward God and beware of pretending you don't have a bitter heart when you hang around with other church members. Okay, so number one, beware of bitterness in your heart. There are pains in this world, but don't let that turn towards bitterness inside. There are bitter circumstances. Don't let that turn towards bitterness in your heart. And secondly, when you are in those situations and you are feeling bitter, don't hide it. It's better to share that with brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, God already knows anyways, right? Go to God with your bitterness and even go to one another and ask each other for strength. Just be honest. And don't try to get God off the hook by saying, well, God wasn't in charge of that. God allowed it, but he did not ordain it. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Because if, if God is not in control of those situations, or if he just allows something that he doesn't plan, so if things are going not according to his plan, that's scary, isn't it? Isn't it scary if some things don't go according to God's plan? And you're saying, hey, trust God. If you're going to help another church member and say, hey, you need to trust God in your trial, but they can't trust God because not everything goes according to his plan, then you've just given them shaky ground to stand on. So brothers and sisters, Bethany Baptist Church, when seeking to encourage each other in pain, don't make excuses for God's providence. Don't try to explain it either. Just say, I don't know why, but I know God's here and I know he loves you and we love you. So, brothers and sisters, main idea again, trust God in your bitter situations because he is for you when it seems he's against you. And you do that by recognizing his providence. He is in control. His plan is being unfolded. Secondly, though, trust God in bitter situations by receiving his care. Look at chapter 2. Let's read chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character. He's a godly man from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Family member of Naomi. Ruth, the Moabitess, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So what does Naomi want to do? She wants to go and pick what? Grain. And this is the barley harvest season. They just happen to come during the barley harvest season. It's time to, it's time to reap, right? And so as they go to reap, she's asking if she can go out and work. Naomi is probably on the older side. She can't carry large bags. There's a point where Ruth is said to maybe have carried a 90-pound bag of, of stuff back to her, her mother from the field. So uh, Naomi, being on the older side, probably does not have the strength she has as a young woman, whereas Ruth here is strong and able to carry. So she wants to work. Again, Naomi loves her mom. Why is she there? Why did Naomi go back to Bethlehem? She loves her mother-in-law. She wants to be with her wherever she goes. She wants to serve her. Mom, you're too old. Let me, I got this for you. I got your back. Let me go do this for you. She loves her mom. It's not about her comfort. It's not about her going back to her family. It's about her love and care for her mom and God's people. So, verse three, so Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion, she happened to be, quote unquote, happened to be, in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was Elimelech's family. 
Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to his harvesters, Yahweh be with you. Yahweh bless you, they replied. Isn't that nice? I love that greeting. Those are not throwaway words. When the Bible does greetings, grace be with you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or at the end, grace be with you. Why do we say Yahweh be with you? Yahweh bless you. We're getting in our words, we are pulling God into the middle of our relationships. We're pulling God into the middle of our interactions. It's not just, oh, you sneezed, God bless you, as a throwaway phrase. We're actually saying the God of the covenant, may he bring his blessings, his salvific blessings on us who deserve his curse. You're bringing Yahweh and his covenant into these conversations. And so for, for them to have this greeting, it's not just a mere pleasantry. God is in the center of Boaz's life and in the center of Boaz's operation. The way he is as a boss to his employees, it's all about God. This is a godly man. So verse five, Boaz asks his servants, who are in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain from the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she had a little rest, rested a little in the shelter. So is she a hard worker or a lazy worker? She's a hard worker, right? She has not rested except for a little break. She took a little five minute break and then she went right back to it. Okay, verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. First he calls her, first she's called a Moabitess. Now he calls her my what? Daughter. Family. God's people. You're not a foreigner here. You're my daughter. Don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. So there's protection there. To be a young 25-year-old woman, single, foreigner with no family in a foreign land, going out in public just trying to harvest, is that a vulnerable position to be in? That's a very vulnerable position to be in, especially during the time of Judges. If you just read Judges 17, 18, and 19 about how many times people are knocking on the door because they want to rape men. And instead, you know, there's one story in Judges 19 where, you know, the, the wife is thrown out. Just a horrific story in Judges 19. A woman is thrown out there and then, and then is, is assaulted and violated all night and, de- and dead in the morning. And that's Judges. In Judges, during the period, that's Ruth 1.1, during the time of the Judges, it was a crazy place to live in Israel. There was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here's a young woman wandering around harvesting for her mother-in-law because she loves her. And so for, for Boaz to say, don't go anywhere else. You're safe here. Come back to this field. I told my young men not to touch you. They will protect you. Go with my female servants. Don't go out elsewhere. We don't know what's going on in those other fields. Stay here in my field. So go ahead and go back to your mom and come back and stay here. So is this God's mercy? God's protection, right? On a vulnerable person? So that's what's going on here. And then reading on in verse 11, or verse 10, Ruth's response, she fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother and your native land and how you came to a people you previously didn't even know. May Yahweh reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from Yahweh, God of Israel. 
under whose wings you have come for refuge. This is a godly man recognizing that this woman has done a godly thing for her mother-in-law. And he cares about that. He recognizes God's grace. He recognizes virtue. He recognizes godliness. And he encourages her with with his words. And so verse 13, her response, my Lord. She said, I have found favor with you, and you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. I don't deserve this. I'm a foreigner, and yet you're treating me like an Israelite. Thank you. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters, and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. Okay, so she comes as a foreigner, then she's treated like a female servant, and now she's having a meal with who? Boaz and the harvesters, treated like an equal. See the godliness and the the care this man has for this vulnerable woman? Verse 15, when she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles. So don't let her just go out in the field, even among the things you guys already gathered, let her gather among them. Don't humiliate her. Pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until the evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from the meal and gave it to her. So did Ruth bring a lot back home or little? A lot, lot, right? And notice here, Ruth is in a, she would be considered um, someone in poverty, right? Someone poor. And Boaz doesn't just give her the, the stuff. What does he do? He puts stuff out. He enables, he enables her to work, but she still has to what? Work, right? So it's not just, oh, you see poor people, and so you just give them something. At the same time, it's not like, well, you go do your job. I don't care about you. I have nothing to do with you. I'm too busy for you. It's, I love you. I care about you. I want to serve you, but you need to work. Amen. Okay, so it's both and. It's not just you work, do it on your own. It's not just we help and give a handout. It's let me help you, but you need to do some work. You, you, you need assistance, but you still need to work. Amen. Okay? So welfare and personal responsibility in a sense. Okay, moving on. Verse 19. Oh, we're in verse 19. Oh, wait, no, 19. Her mother-in-law said, where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May Yahweh bless the man who noticed you. She doesn't know who it is. Ruth told her mother-in-law she had worked with and said, the, man, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Boaz? <laughs> May Yahweh bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. What did Naomi say about God in, ver- in chapter one? God made her life very what? Bitter. Bitter. And what is she saying here? May Yahweh bless him because he, now is the he there Boaz or is it God? Because God has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead or because Boaz has not abandoned his living, his kindness to the living or the dead. You know, it's, it's, we don't know, but they both make sense, don't they? Is, is Naomi having a change of heart? She was embittered and now she's saying, God, you know, praise God. May God bless Boaz because God has not abandoned us. Hmm. Her heart is starting to turn perhaps. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with the young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So it's harvest season, so, so stay with them so that, so that I could continue. So all season long, I'm going to be able to get food. Verse 22, so Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. 
Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So here, Ruth continues for the next few months during the harvest season. And so what's, what's my second point here? If you're going to trust God in your bitter situation, number one, recognize God's providence. But number two, receive God's care. Isn't God caring for Naomi through Ruth? And isn't God caring for Ruth through Boaz? God, so God still, even in your bitter situation, you need to look around and see that God hasn't left you. God's given you people. He's given you brothers and sisters. He's given you neighbors. He's given you family. He's given you friends. He has not left you in your bitterness. He cares about you. And Naomi is starting to receive that care and recognize God is behind this. Praise God for caring for us. He has not forsaken the living or the dead. So, So receive God's care through others. Naomi receives care through Ruth because Ruth is resolved. I am determined to help my mom. And Naomi and Ruth receive care through Boaz. And all of them are receiving care through God. Notice this. Coincidences. Boaz happens to be a relative of Naomi. Ruth happens to stumble upon Boaz's field. She just happened to work there. Boaz happens to be a godly man. And Ruth happens to be a servant-hearted and selfless woman. All of these strange coincidences, right? No, no design here. No God orchestrating things here, right? Just strange coincidences, right? Of course not. God is clearly at work in the background. Amen. The whole time he's been at work in the background, even in the death of family members. What does this mean for us as church family? Christian, God cares for you. Notice the little things against the backdrop of the fact that we deserve God's condemnation, and yet God gives us all these good gifts, all of these people around us. Another thing, now, Naomi's not the only one who's bereaved. Who else is bereaved? Who else is losing, missing a husband besides Naomi? Ruth, right? And what's Ruth's, what's Ruth's way out or her way to cope with the bitter situation that she has? Serve others. So, Christian, when you are in a difficult situation, don't just look to be served, but welcome and receive that service. Look to serve other people. Look to share the gospel with other people. Look to bring the glory of God and the goodness of God to other people. Look to meet other people's needs as well as your own needs being met by others, like Ruth. And as a church family, let us be the body that cares for others' holiness and God-driven love and blessing. Boaz cared for Ruth. We should care for each other. Ruth cared for her mom. We should care for each other. If you're not a Christian, realize this, because I said God cares for Christians. If you're not a Christian, I have good news for you too. God cares for you too. God causes the rain and the sun to fall on all of us. The air you're breathing right now, the air I'm breathing right now, that's God's care for us. And God also gives us his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God cares about you. The question is, will you receive that care? And for our broader society, our world needs to know that working for the good of others, especially the vulnerable, like the immigrant, the orphan, the oppressed, and the ethnic minority is a good expression of God's care. As a society, we need to keep working for righteousness and peace in our society and in our world. So let us trust God in our bitter situations because he is for you when it seems like he's against you. And how do you trust God? By recognizing his providence. Secondly, by receiving his care. And thirdly, 
by responding responsibly to revelation. What do I mean by that? Or walking to God. How do you receive God's care or how do you trust God? Walk towards God. When you're in pain, walk towards God. When you're in pain and bitterness and a bitter situation, receive or respond responsibly to what God has revealed. God is speaking to you in his word. He's giving you instructions. You're in a, you're in a bitter situation. God is speaking to you. You need to respond responsibly to what God is saying to you. You still have responsibilities in your bitter situation. And look at, look at the responsibility here based on what Naomi knows about God's word. Look at chapter three, verse one. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? So she wants her daughter to be taken care of. She cares about Ruth as well. Haven't you been working with his female servants for all these months, maybe two, three months, this barley harvest season? This evening, because it's the festival, here's the end of it. This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Look your best, like you're going on a date. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. When he, when, uh, then he will explain to you what you should do. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> What's going on here? So Naomi's plan is... Uh, Naomi understands God's word. She understands Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. There's two different laws there, and they kind of kind of come together here. In Leviticus 25, if your family member, if all the men in a family dies, and they have this big field that, are, that needs to be harvested, you, if you're a family member, you need to redeem and buy that field and, and continue to perpetuate that land for your tribe. Okay? So you need to redeem the land. There's a second thing, though. At the same time, um, in Deuteronomy 25, if you are married... If you're married to your spouse and you have a household and you have property and yet you die before you have sons, they can't inherit the land. So what do you need to do? Your brother or your closest relative needs to marry your widow and the first son born to that widow will be in charge in the name of the deceased father or the deceased husband, okay? So there's two different laws here and, and, and Naomi's aware of this. God has revealed some things to them in their situation, and you either say, well, I'm going to obey God and try to, try to follow God's plan here, and maybe, maybe blessing will come out of it, or you say, well, I'm in such a bad situation, maybe God will just get me out. I'm just going to sit here and mope and cry until something happens. That's not what God wants you to do. God, does want, God doesn't mind you crying. God doesn't mind you, you shedding tears over your bitter situation, but God wants you to get up, listen to his word, and respond. He wants you to walk to him. Now, he's holding you up the whole time, and he's doing things before you, but he wants you to walk to him in obeying his word. So, so Naomi has this plan. Hey, let's obey God's word. There, there's a situation here. There's a setup here that maybe through this, we can get out of our situation completely, permanently, not just for this um, barley harvest season, okay? So Naomi, has the, she hatches the plan. Ruth is willing to do it, verse 5. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law charged her to do. After Boaz ate and drank, he was in good spirits, and he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At, the, at midnight, Boaz was startled. He woke up, turned over with his feet uncovered, and there, was a lie, uh, uh, there, was, there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Okay, so if you're sleeping out in the open... 
and you're sort of warm, and you're covered up and bundled up because it's cold outside at night, and then your feet get uncovered, you're going to wake up, right? That's what I do to my kids. Whenever it's time to wake up, just pull the blanket off of them and just let them feel the cold until they get up. So same thing here. You uncover the feet. What's the point of uncovering the feet? Um, let me read to you what the one study Bible says. Ruth is secretly to fold back the skirt of Boaz's long tunic, exposing the area around the feet, and then lie down there. These proposed actions may seem very forward, but in fact, they involve no moral compromise on either Ruth or Boaz's part. The exposure of Boaz's feet to the night chill will awaken him at the best moment for a private conversation. See, when it's not too cold yet, he won't wake up, and other people still might wake up, right? But by the time it gets cold enough, everyone else is sound asleep. So it, it wakes him up at the right time. More important, the gesture symbolizes Ruth's willingness to marry Boaz. She's submitting to him and saying, please, she's basically proposing in, in, a, in a humble, dependent way. Will you take me in obedience to these laws? Will you take me under your wing and provide for us an heir? What's Boaz's response? Verse 10. Then he said, may Yahweh bless you, my daughter, you have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. What does he mean by that? Your, your, your kindness now is through the roof. What does he mean by that? How was, how, was, how was Ruth faithful in her covenant love to Naomi and to God? She wanted to, to care for who? Who did Ruth want to care for? Naomi. And now, so she, she's there, she's getting food, she's gathering all the time, she, she's using her physical strength to, to gather stuff for him. But now how is, her, how is her kindness ratchet up a notch? Ruth is 25 years old or so, she's young, she's attractive, and she can still get married. But instead of just getting married and taking care of herself, what does she want to do? She wants to marry Boaz, who's older. Why? Because if she marries Boaz, when they have a son, that son is going to be responsible for whose household? Naomi's household, Elimelech's household. And that son, that first son, will be responsible to take care of who? Naomi. So, so what does Boaz see when he sees Ruth's proposal? You really care about your mom. I mean, you're willing to even not marry another young man, not marry rich or poor just for your own sake and, and, and take care of yourself. You really care about your mom so much that you're w- w- willing to marry me. I'm a little bit older. Yeah, I do have money, but I'm a little bit older. But you're, you're doing this because you want to keep this law because you want to take care of your mother-in-law. Your kindness is increased. He's impressed by her godliness. She's not selfish. She's not just caring about her own needs, her own pleasures. She's caring about her mother-in-law for the long haul. And so Boaz is impressed. Verse 11. So what's Boaz going to do? Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. They know you're a godly woman. Verse 12. Yes, it is true that I'm a family redeemer, but there's a redeemer closer than I am. Boaz already knows the situation. Hmm. Anyways, moving on. 13, stay here tonight and in the morning if he wants to redeem you. That's good. You'll be taken care of. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Don't you? I love this about Boaz. He still wants to keep the law. He cares about Ruth, but his good intentions doesn't mean he disobeys God. There's another redeemer in front of me. Boaz is not about his pleasure. Yay, I get to marry a young woman. Boaz is thinking, I want you to be taken care of. I don't care if you're taken care of by me or by this other redeemer. As long as you and your mother-in-law are now taken care of, that's what I care about. I care about your good. I care about your good. So you will be taken care of either by me or by this other redeemer, but just know you'll be taken care of. 
Again, he's not being selfish. He's selfless here. 14, so he, she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that, the woman, that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into town. That's where I think one commentator says that's about 90 pounds. She's hauling back home. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves, un- unless he resolves this today. This guy's caring for you. He's going to take care of you. Just rest. Now, this is a love story, but that's not the Disney romance love story. This is a love story of loving God and loving and genuinely caring about people's good. So what, what's the application for us? Christian, identify what God's calling you to do and do it. Don't just stay in your bitter situation and just kind of sit there waiting for God to magically grab a hand and just pull you out. God gives you his word. He gives you his people who instruct you in his word so that you can obey his word. And as you obey his word, you start to see his purposes unfold even more in your pain. So brothers and sisters, I know you're in pain. I know there's bitter situations, but don't use that to, to, to be passively waiting. Keep seeking God. Keep walking towards him. Keep walking towards him. Keep listening to his word and obeying what you know. For our church family, we are a community that is poor in spirit. And we need to encourage each other to keep going to God for his instructions. If you're not a Christian, God is calling you also to listen to what God's, resp- God's saying to you so that you might respond as well. Lastly, okay, so trust God in your bitter situations because he is for you when it seems he's against you. How do you trust God? By recognizing his providence, by receiving his care, by walking towards God, and lastly, by rejoicing in redemption. Chapter four, by rejoicing in redemption. Look at verse one. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come down, come over here and sit down. It's interesting that this man is not named. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. There's a quorum. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech, our family member. I thought I should inform you because, or buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. It's your property. It's your harvest. But if you don't want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. So do you want the free field or do you want a field? Yes or no? What does this guy say in verse five at the end of it? Does he want it or not? In verse four, I mean, verse four, does he want it or not? I want to redeem it, he said. I want it. I'll take it. Verse six, or verse five, then Boaz said, Boaz here has the fine print. Here's the fine print now. On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Okay, so you get the property, but guess what? You get, you get the wife, you get the widow. And when you get the widow, you have to have a baby with the widow, and that baby gets to own that property, not your family, not your sons. So what does the guy say after that in verse 6? I, uh, I can't redeem it myself, or uh, I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So he gives it up. First, he wanted it. Yeah, it's great. Have more property. 
oh, wait, I have to um, give it to the son of the widow that I'm supposed to have. Uh, yeah, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a little busy right now or, I, you know, it's complicated. My wife might get mad and my sons, you know. So uh, what happened was, you know, he gives all the reasons. And, and so he says, he says, I can't do it. Again, you see the picture of selflessness, Boaz, versus at worst, selfishness. And let's not be too hard on this guy. Maybe he's being self-centered and selfish or at, wor- at best, he's being indifferent. Even if he's not being super selfish here, he just doesn't care enough about Ruth and the family to say, hey, I know it's going to be complicated in my family, but I'm willing to undergo complications to serve. So what is Boaz? So, so you got the right. So verse 7, at an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are my witnesses today that I'm buying Naomi, uh, buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. You see Boaz's selflessness there? It's about his name, about that family. I'm going to serve them in that way. So Boaz secures the public agreement, and um, he secures wife, um, Ruth now as his wife. Verse 11 now, look at verses 11 and 12. You get this blessing as we come now to the climax of the story. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. So we're witnesses. Ruth is now taken care of, right? Naomi is now taken care of. They, they, even though they lost husbands, they are now protected because they have their family redeemer here protecting them. So look at verse 11. Here's the blessing they say. We're witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is entering your house like who? Like Rachel and Leah who, built, who together built the house of Israel. What, who's Rachel and Leah? The, the wives of who? Jacob. The mothers of Israel. The whole country. I mean, there's Bilhah and Dinah as well. Not Dinah. I can't remember the other one right now. But, there's, they're, they're, but the two mothers of Israel are who? Rachel and Leah. So may Ruth be as great in history as Leah and Rachel, the mothers of the nation of Israel. May Ruth have that greatness on her as well. Look at reading on, and she's going to have that greatness as we finish the story. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May Boaz's name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So not only may you have family blessing, may, may, um, may your house, Boaz, be like Perez. All right, you have to know the story a little bit. Who's Perez? <laughs> who cares about who Perez is? Perez is the son of who? Judah. And then he says, may your offspring, look at verse 12, may, be, may, may, your, may you become like Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Offspring, because of the seed. May, you be, may your house be like Perez because of the seed brought to you. What's, when you hear seed and offspring, what do you think of in the Old Testament? Child? What, what, what story? The garden of what? 
Garden of Eden, what did God say to the serpent? The seed will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. There will be an offspring of the woman Eve who's going to crush Satan's head. And now they're saying, may, may, the offspring, may your offspring be like that of Perez. So the offspring of Eve is going to crush Satan's head. That offspring is not only the, the, the son of Adam and Eve, but the son of Abraham, right? But not just Abraham, the son of Israel, Jacob. But not, a, not just Jacob, not the other 11 tribes, but the tribe of Judah, Perez's son. In Genesis 49.10, he is the one who will rule with, an, with a scepter. And now Boaz is in the line of who? Judah. And so may your son, through Ruth, carry the offspring who's going to crush Satan's head. And then later we find out that it goes down that um, Ruth is the great-grandma of who? King who? King David. And David is the great ancestor of who? Jesus Christ. So here they're, you know, out of this big mess of losing your husbands and being in a foreign land, now you get to be just as great as Rachel and Leah? And you get to be in the offspring line where your descendant is the one who will crush Satan and save the world. From your bitter, dark, hopeless situation, you have now etched your name in redemptive history. Praise God. God cared. God had a plan the whole time. In the bitterness of the situation, God had a plan the whole time. And so in verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The woman said, the women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than what? Better to you than seven sons. Seven is the name of fullness. If you had all the sons you wanted, she's better than all of them. Better than seven sons. This woman who loves you and is better than seven sons to you has given birth to him. Naomi took the child. This is the ending of a story. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to who? Naomi. It's her son. I mean, it's in that line. It's that household. A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. So what do we, hear? What do we learn here? What do we see here? We see marriage. You see conception. You see blessing. You see the fullness of Naomi. You see a son now for Naomi carrying on Elimelech's name. Now, go back to the beginning in your mind, at least, of the story. Ruth, or Naomi comes back home and they say, hey, are you pleasant? Are you Naomi? Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because Yahweh has dealt bitterly with me. He has opposed me. He has afflicted me. God is against me. But now what does she think? Now with the baby on her lap, now what is she thinking? She goes from bitter to sweet, from empty to what? Full. From God turned against me to God has always been for me. From God opposed me to God has supported me. From God has afflicted to me to God has blessed and provided for me. God uses your trials for your good. My mom got cancer in 1988. 
And that led to the salvation of our family. In the bigger picture of God's providence, God's bitterness, or what seems to be bitter, is actually sweet. And we don't always realize it in this life. But we will. We will. And notice, did, did it just get sweet? Or let me put it this way. What, what Naomi said in the beginning was, I, I, left, I left Israel full. I came back what? Empty. Here's my question to you, if you understand the book of Ruth. Was she ever truly empty? No. She had a daughter-in-law who was better to her than what? Seven sons. She lost her two sons. She has a daughter-in-law who's better than all the sons she could ever have. She was never empty. She was, God was never opposed to her. And brother or sister, in your bitter situation, God is never against you. Even when it seems darkest. Even when you can't see any light in your darkness. God is never against you. You are never empty. Just like Naomi was never empty. So what does this mean for us? Let's consider our trials a great joy. Let's trust God in our trials. Will we trust God in our bitter situations when we can't see the bigger picture? That's the question that Ruth, the book of Ruth is asking us. So what happens at the very end? He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of who? David. Now, these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And as we know, so that's the king of Israel. And it's promised in Isaiah 9, 1, that unto us a child will be born, unto us a son is given, and he will be to the nations the king and ruler, and he will sit on the throne of who? Of, of his father David. So Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David, David fathered Jesus. David fathered Jesus. And Jesus saves us from our sins. So let us trust God in our bitter situation. And, and do we, let's just be honest. Have we failed at times to trust God in our bitter situations? Have we ever been bitter? We have been, right? And yet God tells us not to be. But here's the good news. Jesus trusted God in the most bitter situation because we don't trust God in our bitter situations. Jesus trusted God in the most bitter of situations knowing that God was for him when God was actually, even in the cross, actually against him. So John 19 says, a jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge of sour wine full of, full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is done. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus trusted God in the truly bitter situation so that in our situations that only seem bitter, we can trust God too. Praise God for Christ dying for our sins in the bitter situation, and rising from the dead for us. And now, in our bitter situations, God uses our bitter situations to, to make disciples and spread the blessing to other people. And we don't see it all now, but we will see it when Christ returns. God not only reverses the emptiness, he reverses the curse of death in our lives and in the lives of those we love. He not only reverses our feeling of uselessness and the meaninglessness of our trial, he fills our trials with all the meaning that we could ever imagine. So brothers, let us trust God in knowing he has redeemed us and uses our situation to spread his redemption. And let's remind each other, not only of the past cross, but also the future coming of Christ, even when we can't connect the dots in our trials in the middle. If you're not a Christian, I'll close with this. If you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, I don't want to be a Christian. I could never be a Christian because how could God allow suffering? 
If God is all-powerful and all-good, how can he allow the horrors that go on in our lives and in our world today? Here's the answer, or at least the half answer. If God suffered, then your suffering isn't meaningless. If God suffered, your suffering is not senseless. First, if, God, if you're going to be mad at God for allowing suffering, if he's big enough to be mad at for allowing suffering, then he has to be big enough to have a reason for your suffering that you can't understand, and you can't have it both ways. If God is so big, then maybe he has a good reason that you don't understand. Secondly, though, though we don't know the reasons why God allows our suffering to continue, we know that God is not indifferent because he enters the suffering with us on the cross of Christ. And so because of that, we can trust him in our suffering. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to trust in Jesus and turn from your sins today because Jesus took the bitter cup for you. Trust God in your bitter situation by recognizing his providence, by receiving his care, by responding responsibly to revelation, and by rejoicing in his redemption. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you do not trust God in your bitter situation, if you don't do it, you will believe a lie about God's goodness. You'll think God is not good, even though his goodness is available to you all around you. You will, you will become bitter or you will grow in your bitterness. And, and lastly, worst of all maybe, you'll spread bitterness to those around you. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Bitterness causes trouble and defiles many. But if you trust God in your bitter situation, you will know the goodness of God in your trial. You will rejoice in God and experience his peace that passes understanding in the midst of your difficult circumstances, and you will see God's goodness and redeeming work around you. And you'll even be an instrument of blessing others through your pain for his glory. And so we go back to what Psalm 119.50 says. It's true. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise, God, has given me life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who takes the bitter situations for mothers, for fathers, for brothers, for sisters, for friends, for family, for neighbors, and you reverse our bitterness and make it sweet in the end. That doesn't eliminate the bitterness now. We still miss our loved ones. We still feel the pain, and yet your promises give us perspective. So we pray that we would rest in your providence, your purposeful providence that continues to push us to your son, the prince of peace. Help us to trust you in our bitter situations because even though it seems you're against us, we know in Christ that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen.